love that song, and that's from the Psalms. And I was just thinking of Psalm 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies triumph over me. And then he says, Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. With that in mind, let's turn to Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 4. All of this, since we've been back <clears throat> face-to-face, and this is increment 237 in Hebrews, since we've been back, our directedness has been, of course, to the Lord and to behold his image as in a mirror and to be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. But we've had a view to Hebrews chapter 8 here. We've been doing an exegesis, a creative exegesis of Hebrews 8, but you might not know it, and that's the beauty of it. You might not know it. And this is called Redemption as an End, part 2. Redemption considered or denoting an end, a goal, an objective, And there is in the end denoted by redemption a penultimate goal and an ultimate goal. And we're going to look at those today because you are involved with both. In many of my months of reading, and I don't know, I think it took a couple of years to read Thomas Aquinas Summa Theologica, one of the early attempts at a systematic theology. Two verses, and I noticed this, two verses kept arising in my mind and I would sometimes put them on the side of the notes of the uh, text and they were 2 Peter 1.4 and Philippians 2.13 those two verses and they've emerged again and arose like monuments in my consciousness recently 2 Peter 1.4 speaks of our participation in the divine nature. And Philippians speaks of God in us willing and doing that which is to his own good pleasure. One verse has to do with human participation in the divine nature while not ceasing to be human, of course, while the other speaks of divine participation in our humanity, while God does not cease, of course, to be divine. Both of these verses have profound relevance to that which we're calling the New Covenant Community, which is the penultimate end denoted by redemption. For those of us who preach and teach the word of God, and that goes beyond just pastors, teachers, and evangelists, teachers of Sunday school, teachers of the teens. For those of us who preach and teach the word and who just want to be and aspire to be witnesses of Jesus Christ, effective witnesses, in what some are calling now a post-Christian era, It's advisable to stay 
saturated with the scriptures and steeped in good theology, secondly. Steeped in good theology. Good theology analyzes the situation of humanity and all creation in and by Jesus Christ and him crucified. While it also explores the eschatological hope proffered by the scriptures and that hope speaks of a change of condition this change of situation which only faith perceives will be universally manifested in such a way as to affect a universal alteration of the universal condition an alteration which is perhaps best described as a liberation. Someday I'd like to write a book, or maybe I'll inspire one of you to write it, because I don't think I'll have time, about how true eschatology produces mental health. Mental health, not entirely from that, but a true understanding of eschatology, where this is all going, where redemption is all ending up can be a tremendous incentive to mental health. That's obviously not being taught today, at least on the public school level. It's not being taught in many churches today either. But a genuine eschatology and a hopeful eschatology is one of the major factors in mental health. And one of the reasons for a failing of mental health in our own time is because of a lack of understanding of the end denoted by redemption. And that's what we're talking about today and have been. The liberation that we're talking about is grounded in the one who died, which is the name of Jesus in Romans 6, 7 and eight thirty-three the one who died, and I keep remembering the King James, yea, rather, who is risen from the dead and seated at God's right hand, making intercession for us. Romans 8.34, therefore, becomes kind of a runway right into Hebrews. The intercession, Christ seated, interceding for us. Hebrews kind of takes up at that point, but it also recovers some ground because that liberation we're talking about is grounded in the one who died And beyond that, who arose from the dead and who's seated at the right hand of God where he makes intercession for us. And that means a lot more than just praise for us at the right hand of the Father, of the majesty, says the scripture. And so the liberation of all creation is rooted in turn in the incarnation of the second person or the second hypostasis, as it's called in theology theological circles, of the divine trinity by which God the Son assumed not only the nature of humanity but creatureliness itself. Because it says the word became flesh, not just a human being. He became, of course, a human being. But in becoming a human being, he became the microcosm of the universe. He became flesh. And so he took upon himself not only the nature of humanity but creatureliness itself 
and the substance of the cosmos of which man is a microcosm. Now, that's all kind of big talk, but the incarnation was necessary to establish the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ, and the high priestly ministry of Jesus is the basis of the participation of human beings in the divine nature. So, speaking of good theology, that's good theology. Speaking of scriptures, it's impossible to overstate the importance of a particular clause in the introduction to the aforementioned second epistle of Peter, where I asked you to turn, which is crucial to see in its context. Second Peter 1, and I translated it this again in my study this week, Simon Peter, a slave and an emissary of Jesus Christ, to those who've received an allotment of faith of equal value to ours, equal value to the apostles, that means, through the righteousness. Now we know from Psalm 22, 31, that right, the righteousness here that he's speaking of is what God has done. We've established from Psalm 98, 2 and 3, and from Romans chapter 1, verse 17, and throughout Romans, that righteousness is a name for the saving act of God, which was the right thing for him to do for us. The righteousness of God. So we've received an allotment of faith of equal value to ours, Peter said, through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, please notice, this, this really struck me afresh this week. And if you don't get anything else out of this message, you can get this at least. Notice that it says, notice what it doesn't say first. It does not say we received righteousness through our faith. It says we receive faith through his righteousness. And so, being saved, he gives us faith, not faith saves us, his faithfulness saved us. It does not say we receive righteousness through our faith, but we received faith through the righteousness of God, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. One person, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is, through God's faithfulness expressed in Jesus Christ's divine, human, faithful obedience, all the way through, all the way to, all the way through the death of the cross. We're not justified by our faith, but by our faith, we recognize and understand that we are justified in God's eyes by Jesus Christ's faithfulness. I'll say that again. It's not an attempt to be tricky. We're not justified by our faith, but by our faith, which we've been allotted by God through his righteousness, we recognize, we understand. It's Hebrews 11.3 that says, through faith we understand. We understand through the faith that he gave us, through his righteousness, that we are justified in God's eyes by Jesus Christ's faithfulness and by the righteous saving act of God in Jesus Christ. And I hope we learned that from Romans. 
because we did spend a time or two there in Romans, and in Better Call Paul. So let's continue. Just this brief and kind of breezy exegesis of Second Peter 1. May grace and peace be yours in abundance, or literally be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord whose divine power has given to us everything for life and piety. Life and piety meaning the spiritual life. Life in general and the spiritual life. He's given us everything for life and the spiritual life. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his glory and virtue. Now, I just happened to realize that if this message goes to its end as I thought it might, and I didn't finish kind of the finishing touches of this until 9.10 this morning, but if it goes the way I think, then this is going to apply all the way through to the end because it says, through his divine power, he's given us everything for life and piety, through the knowledge of him who called us to his glory and virtue, through which... He has given us great and priceless promises so that through them you'll be participants of the divine nature, meaning through their fulfillment, those promises. You'll be participants of the divine nature. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through evil desire or lust. Now, the clause, and I'm only doing light, a light exegesis of this. The clause, you'll be participants of or partakers of the divine nature, or you are even, because those promises are being fulfilled, signifies what's called deification. A scary term if you don't define it well, because it's simply deification, the way the patristics used it or the church fathers used it, means merely a graced participation in the divine nature while we don't become divine or cease to be human, partakers of the divine nature. That is the end denoted by redemption. Theosis is another word that they use in the Greek for deification, theosis, T-H-E-O-S-I-S. It's the ultimate end denoted by redemption. In fact, deification of the whole universe is the ultimate end, denoted by redemption, that wonderful word, apolutrosis. Deification, then, is a human participation in the divine nature. It's the ultimate sanctification in glorification. Now, those terms are going to come into focus again in Hebrew, sanctification, and glorification. Sanctification, now listen to this in connection with what we just read in Second Peter. Sanctification has to do with God's calling us to participation in and graced imitation of his own virtue. We are called to his own, he called us to his own virtue. That's sanctification. Glorification has to do with God calling us to a grace participation in his own glory. He has called us to his own virtue and glory. Virtue in this time of the militant church 
in the agona, glory in the time when the church is glorified. God's called us to both, and as many as he called, those he justified, and as many as he justified, those he glorifies. So, that's the ultimate end denoted by redemption. This is all going to be in print, so if you want to study it further, you'll be able to. The penultimate end, that's not the final end, but the second to the last, as it were, denoted by redemption, is the new covenant community, diathekein kainen, New Testament, new covenant community. And there's a lot of difference between covenant and contract. Contract is bilateral. Covenant is unilateral in the case of God. And so, thankfully, that's a covenant of grace, a better covenant. Better promises enact this better covenant. In fact, the better promises of Hebrews 8, 6 are the priceless promises of Second Peter 1, 4. And so the better promises of the new covenant community have to do with the partaking of the divine nature of that new covenant community, which also looks to a universal partaking of the divine nature. We hear a lot about Matthew 25 and the so-called last judgment, and as much as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And we've considered, are those least of the brethren Christians, are they missionaries, are they the poor, are they Israelites? They are all mankind. They are all man. He is the brother of all mankind. He became like his brethren to redeem his brethren. You think about that. No wonder Paul said the love of Christ controls us because if one died for all, and he did, then all died. He's not ashamed to call anyone in the human race his brother. That's another project for a future message or two. So the penultimate end denoted by redemption is you, a New Testament community, which is by my definition a community awakened to the reality of Jesus Christ. Simply, a community that is awakened to the reality of Jesus Christ. His divine and Human identity, his saving significance. And if we look at Ephesians 5.14, you get the meaning of this. Awake, you sleepers. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. He will illumine you, illuminate you, enlighten you. And you'll realize that you have been reconciled. The New Testament or New Covenant community is a community of those in whom God was pleased to simply reveal his son and to whom he was simply pleased to reveal his son. He does this one at a time, as it were. But one day, it'll be all at once, when every eye sees him, the pierced Messiah, the pierced Christ. Yahweh pierced, pierced through in the house of his friends. Every eye will see him. And as Jesus put it, that they may see the Son and believe on him. And that everyone who sees the Son is raised from the dead. We see Jesus. The New Covenant community is a community of which it can be said 
Christ is all and in all. It's an anticipation of God being all in all, the ultimate end denoted by redemption. The church is an anticipation of what will universally be true of all humanity, dead and alive, of all creation. All Therefore, his salvific work, his liberation, is not just anthropological, human, but cosmological, universal. And that becomes all the more fascinating, as I've said many times before, when you look, and you can look, at the new images that are produced by the James Webb Telescope, which gives us a further view than we've ever seen before, into what God just spoke into being. Because he felt like it. In love. It was all in love. He created in love. He redeems in love. Creation becomes a synonym for redemption. Because redemption is the final creation of God. Which he executed in his unrestricted, unimaginable love. And... In the phrase, the corruption that is in the world through lust or evil desire. I never really quite understood that completely until I read a phrase by Sergius Bulgakov, again, who I'm wrestling with on a daily basis lately. He called this the bad use of creaturely freedom. (laughs) It's a pretty good way to put it because that fanned out from all the way from the tree of the the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil all the way to the end of time that showed what is in this world is a corruption a corrosion it's in the world precisely because of the bad use of creaturely freedom that's one of the reasons why if i may jump to a conclusion christ took upon himself creaturely nature so that he could execute a good use of creaturely freedom and redeem that by which the bad use of creaturely freedom brought us into what he what that brought us into in the first Adam, the first Adam. And so the corruption that is in the world through evil desires best described, I think, by the bad use of creaturely freedom. The bad use of creaturely freedom began with the desire of the first woman to be wise by acting against God and his prohibition and by the first man's desire to please the creature over God, namely the woman in that case. The second man, the second person or hypostasis of the divine trinity, assumed creatureliness to redeem the world from the corruption that saturated it through a bad use of creaturely freedom. The good use of creaturely freedom was exercised by the God-man, the Lord Jesus, in his obedience to God all the way to and through the death of the cross. That's called the good use of creaturely freedom, the divine man. The good use of creaturely freedom continues now in those of the new covenant community in whom God is both willing and doing of his own good pleasure. Obedience in Philippians 2.12, do to God in us 
Christ in us. Incidentally, this good use of creaturely freedom, when people realize they've been crucified with Christ and nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me, people who actually live that out and live by the faithfulness of the Son of God, that's the good use of creaturely freedom, and that actually lends leverage to the redemption of history when history is in decline, as it is now. The significance of the ascension of Jesus Christ, I just batted away five thoughts about where this country is right now, none of which I'm going to mention. The significance of the ascension of Jesus Christ, to, because it's self-evident, <laughs> self-evident. The significance of the ascension of Jesus Christ to the right hand of the majesty in the heavens, his majesty, our Father, The significance of that is that Jesus took glorified human essence with him into the triune God. Even the idea of ascent and descent and seated high above and all that, that's really just imagery. That's metaphorical. The real reality of Jesus' ascension is he took the glorified human essence with him into the triune God so that human essence itself participates in the divine nature. That, that's what the high priest means. That's what Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven means. It's more than just, oh, he's thankfully up there praying for us. That's not at all the idea. The significance of the ascension of Jesus Christ, we're having a view here to Hebrews 8.1, is that Jesus took glorified human essence with him into the triune God. Not just his own human essence, but the human essence per se, and in that sense, all human essence. The new covenant community is told that they have been what? You have been what? Raised up and seated, a simultaneous action. Raised up and seated, together, In Christ Jesus, where? In heaven, in the heavenlies. Is that true about you? Yes. What perceives that? Faith. What else? Nothing. Faith. Faith is an infinitely precious perceptibility that God has given to us to survive as Christians in a post-Christian world. I wonder what's on in decline. Is Christianity, as it's defined by man, is in decline? And I say, I, to that I say hallelujah. But is faith in decline? I don't think so. I don't know, though. So we've been told that we've been seated together in the heavens in Ephesians 2.6. As the divine Son of God assumed the human nature, so all humans now become partakers of the divine nature in him. And this is the significance, or at least part of the significance, of we have such a great archpriest seated at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. The majesty is openly stated to be God himself in Hebrews 12, too, when we finally get there. 
The significance is universal in the anthropological sense and in the cosmological sense because in assuming humanity or the human nature, he also more generally became flesh, sarks, which means he associated with his entire beloved but fallen creation of which man is a microcosm. So as the church, the new covenant community, in one sense is in heaven and seated in Christ Jesus. And I was, my dad's 100th birthday was this past September 22nd, and uh, day after years, the true Lou right there. 100 years old, and I was, I was reading in Bulgakov that day how Christ when he ascended into heaven, didn't break his connection with the earth, but remained on earth in another sense, in, in his community. I always remember my dad, the most, he said a theological thing. We were talking about heaven. I said, you're going to have a body, dad, and not just, you know, floating around. And he, he said to my mom, did you hear that, Pat? We're going to have bodies up there, you know. But he said, one day he was, he's always reading behind his paper, and one day I said, well, I was talking to my sister about he ascended, Jesus ascended, and my dad said, well, I don't think he ever left. And then I read yesterday in, no, on dad's birthday, 100th birthday, 9-22-22, I read in Bogakov, there is a sense that he didn't leave. He left, he ascended, but there's another sense where he did not sever his connection with the earth and remained. As, you know, John said it, he said, I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'll come back to you. And that didn't mean the second coming. That meant his presence in the Holy Spirit, his presence in the new covenant community. He hasn't severed his connection. And that's why he co-suffers with the earthly militant church. He suffers together with us. Co-suffer. Sum pathos. Sympathy. Sum pathos. Suffer together. Co-suffers with us. On earth, as he's ascended in heaven. We're ascended with him in heaven. We're on earth embattled and suffering and enduring. And as far as I've seen, the battle gets more intense. I pray Psalms because I mean it. Don't let my enemies triumph over me. I know there are many enemies. I don't want them to triumph over me. And I want God to be glorified in the trampling of the invisible enemies. Of course, we don't have human enemies in that sense. Although our invisible enemies sure look for mouthpieces. And they sure do find them. So, as the church, in one sense, is in heaven, seated in Christ Jesus, it's also on earth and suffering, filling up that which is yet to be experienced of the sufferings of Christ in his corporate body. Colossians one twenty four. Match up Colossians one twenty four with Ephesians two six. You have a seeming paradox. You have this church in the heavens and a church filling up that which is still to be filled up of the sufferings of Christ in His body, corporate 
body. You can't fill up the redemptive sufferings of Christ. They're finished. It's finished. To tell us die. But there are sufferings yet to be accomplished within his corporate community, the messianic community, and they're being filled up. And Paul said, I fill up that which is lacking. In other words, he had a pretty good dose of the sufferings, more than most of us will. In fact, of all believers, he probably experienced some of the worst kinds of suffering. I can only relate to a couple of things he went through. One of them is the anxiety that comes upon you daily for the church. And he had churches. There's there's an anxiety, an angst that's genuine and it's normal. It's not neurotic anxiety, which is the fad today. Everybody seems to be anxious about everything, fearful about everything. We should be fearful about nothing and worry about nothing. But there's a genuine angst that comes upon us of concern for our nation, our family, our grandchildren, children, parents. All that's normal, normal angst. And Paul said he had a, it came upon him daily, the anxiety of the churches. Imagine the anxiety he felt about the churches in Galatia, what they were going through, their defection, lots of them. So, the new covenant community is the penultimate. Not only is the community in heaven and on earth, but Christ who is in heaven, seated in throne, crowned with glory and honor, is also in his church, the new covenant community, on earth, in the time in between the two great alterations, And he co-suffers with the messianic community. That's what it means about his priesthood. He is a merciful, sumpathos, co-suffering, it says, high priest and also a faithful one. He co-suffers. He doesn't just suffer for you on the cross. He did. But he suffers with you in your daily taking up of a cross. He co-suffers with this messianic community as that community co-suffers with him. Be glad, Peter said in his time, when you suffer for being a Christian. And that can mean a lot of different things, not just preaching the gospel, but representing a kind of rectitude that Christ desires from us that's mocked and spit upon today. Do you realize when Jesus attained his maturity that he had identified with every stage of humanity up to a mature man? He didn't have to become an old man. He identified with every stage of humanity, including from the second of conception in a virgin woman. Think about that. I don't just think about when did life begin. I think about Jesus Christ identifying with human life beginning at the second of conception. And he was conceived all the way up to his early 30s when he attained the stature of a mature man. He didn't have to attain old age. He experienced what old age must feel like under the weight of a cross and falling three times under it. But he identified with every stage of human 
development, starting at the second of conception. So is everything sacred from that point on? I think so. But are you violating someone's right to say that? I can feel the ire and the horrible hatred right now of the atmosphere against what I just said, just then. And believe me, there'll be mouthpieces, screaming ones, that will speak for Satana, the adversary. So our persecution today won't come just because we preach the gospel. It'll come because we might stand for a rectitude that the world has come to hate so bad that they think that the perpetrators of that should be killed or at least eliminated from society. But pacify them through the government, through the government handouts, pacify them through drugs, pacify them, and through patient gradualism, get them to agree to totalitarian government. We're already, already there. There's one way to redeem it. Good use of creaturely freedom, God working in his people, his people co-operating with him. We are co-laborers together with God. 1 Corinthians 3.9, 2 Corinthians 6.1. So, That's how I think. Redemption denotes an ultimate end. It's reached in glorification and the permanent alteration of the human bodies as well as the constitution of the universe by its glorious transfiguration. If you told people about that, wrote about that, gave that eschatology... Didn't even have to call it eschatology, call it cosmology and teach it in schools. You'd, am- you'd be amazed at the change for the better of mental health of our young people. This is where this is all going, kids. To wit, to wit again, the King James keeps coming because that's where I first read it. To wit, the redemption of our bodies. That is, i.e., the redemption of our bodies. Romans eight nineteen to twenty three, compared with Ephesians four thirty, Philippians three twenty to twenty one, First Corinthians fifteen fifty to fifty six. So redemption denotes a penultimate end, the new covenant community, the proleptic body of Christ, and an ultimate end, which is a universal diorthosis. Hebrews nine ten. Again, the penultimate end denoted by redemption is the new covenant community whose obedience is a result of God in them willing and doing. How does Jeremiah put it? And he's quoted in Hebrews, in the second half of Hebrews 8, the whole thing, Jeremiah 31 to 34. How does God 
act inside his people by writing my laws upon their hearts and minds, he says. And then in a co a passage that cooperates with that in Ezekiel thirty six twenty six, I will take out the old stony heart out of them, put in the heart of flesh, I'll put a new spirit in them, and I will place my spirit in them and cause them to walk according to my ordinances, which summed up our love one another as I have loved you. And so the new heart of the new community is the heart of flesh, which is the heart of Jesus the Messiah transplanted in us. The guts of the lamb in Philippians 1.8, as we used to call it. The new heart is the heart of flesh. It's the heart of Christ. And it's the mind of Christ, which we have in 1 Corinthians 2.16, and are simply to let be operative in us in Philippians 2.5. We're going there someday soon. The new spirit in us is our human spirit joined to the God-man, joined to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 6.17. The new covenant community, here's my definition furthered, consists of all human beings who have been awakened from sarkic and psychic sleep. Sarkic from the word sarks or carnal, meaning carnal, and psychic meaning merely psychic and not spiritual. There's a lot of psychic but not spiritual people, and they call themselves spiritual, which is weird. But the church is... The community, the New Testament community, is all human beings who have been awakened from sarkic and psychic sleep and who have been made alive out from sarkic death or carnal death to have Christ shine upon them in Ephesians 5.14 and the spirit of faith in 2 Corinthians 4.13 kindles faith in them. Faith is the perceptivity that alone perceives the totality of God's love expressed in Christ Jesus. Reason doesn't perceive it. Science doesn't perceive it. Observation partly perceives it, but only faith perceives the totality of God's love expressed in Christ Jesus and the salvific reality of Jesus himself. As our archpriest, Jesus is the representative of all humankind He is of such saving significance as to be seated by God's will and command. Sit at my right hand, he said, in the uppermost sector of heaven. And so there is no being and no thing higher than him. Consequently, what that means is all of creation is subordinate to him and subject to his act of salvation. That the new covenant community has been raised up and seated with Christ in the heavens is a reality only perceived, and this is extremely important, and even perceptible by faith, by the faith that is awakened in each member of the community. We walk by faith, not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5.7 Christ's perfect and meritorious obedience Secured salvation for all, not some, but all. That's another point of contention. Persecution, slander, gossip, all those things go around. Lies circulate because of the message of this meritorious obedience securing salvation for all. The devil hates it, and so do the people who are his mouth 
pieces, and there are many of them today. The New Covenant community consists of those human persons who have been granted the esotimon, equally precious, it says, faith, in 2 Peter 1, with the apostles that alone, and this faith alone, perceives it. The better promises on which the New Covenant is based, Hebrews 8, 6, are the same as the exceeding great and precious promises in 2 Peter 1, 4, and there's the connection. They have to do those promises in their fulfillment with a participation in the divine nature. On top of this, the New Covenant community is burdened with a light burden of carrying the message of the reconciliation of all humankind in Christ to all of humankind. What if you'd never read the Bible and you only had one piece of it survive a fire? And it was 2 Corinthians 5.19, just part of it. It said, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. What would you conclude by that? If that was the word of God to you and you knew it, you'd say, well, then the world must be reconciled to God. And what if you were the only one that had that little script? I think you might be kind of motivated to go around telling people about it. Did you know God was in Christ reconciling all of us to himself and we're all reconciled to him? No, I didn't. Well, be reconciled to God then. In other words, be reconciled to the fact that you've been reconciled to God. Oh, no. I still have work to do to make that happen. Okay. See, I stopped being mad at people like that. In fact, I stopped being mad at most sinners because I've realized one thing. I am the most sinful person I know. Because I know me better than I know anybody else. And I know what's in there. And in my flesh, there's no good thing. And so my whole idea of goodness is, is adverts to him. It prescinds from me to him. Most days. Other days, I'm self-righteous. So I don't really despise self-righteous bastards because I am one. See, I'm, I'm a self-righteous bastard. So... Now, I want to give you a little practical thing at the end. Last week I gave you a practical thing on patience. This time I'm going to give you a practical thing on humility. As with the doctrine of patience, I'm going to do just a bare-bones doctrine. This is almost a skeletal framework I have for the doctrine of humility. And we'll start with James 4.10. Now, let me just lead up to this. The New Covenant community is burdened with the light burden of carrying the message of the reconciliation to all of humankind. Colossians 3.11, if you want a hallmark verse, reveals the penultimate end of redemption, which is Christ all in all in a community, a new humanity, as Paul called it. In that verse, he says, Christ is all and in all, speaking only of a new covenant community, a new humanity. 1 Corinthians 15.28 is the hallmark verse that discloses the ultimate end denoted by redemption. That is, when God is all in all, meaning all universally. 
It's what John of Damascus back in the 10th century called universal perichoresis. Recall Lonergan's thesis 15 one more time because we've been working at that since August 14th when we came back to -to face-to-face. Redemption denotes not only an end but also a mediation, namely the payment of the price, Christ the mediator's vicarious passion and death on account of sins and for sinners, our high priest's sacrifice offered in his blood, his meritorious obedience, the power of the risen Lord, and the intercession of the eternal priest. All these features slam-dunked right into Hebrews, right in our face. So last week I noted patience as required of us in this time in between. It's a participation in the patience of Jesus. Thank God, Revelation 1.9. In this agona, we run this race with patience. We fight this battle with patience, with endurance. We're like Rocky against Apollo Creed. Endurance. Even though he didn't win, He endured to the end. We might not win according to what the world thinks is winning, but we go the distance. I finished the course. What? I fought the fight. I kept the faith. So here's a bare-bones doctrine of humility. So it's it's, it's skeletal. So don't think there's much flesh on the bones of it yet, but I can fan this out, flesh it out. That's a better way to say it. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up, James 4.10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Why is the message that I've taught today not accepted by people? Because you have to humble yourself to accept the message of the word of God. So do I. Without humility, there's no more insight. There's no conversion. Now, here's another thing I want you to pay attention very quickly to. Matthew 18.1-4, here's the... Pericope, the little episode. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus asking him, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called called a little child and had him stand in the middle of them. And he said, I'm telling you truly, if someone does become converted and does not become converted and that is caused to turn, it's a passive And become like this little child, there's no way he'll even enter into the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, here's something to consider about. This is what came to my mind. So this is, to me, it was a stream of consciousness. It will come across as a bare-bones doctrine. Every conversion requires humility. Every conversion is an elevation of one's horizon. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. He will raise you up. There is no entry into, meaning operation in, the kingdom of heaven apart from humility. Jesus humbled himself as the single inclusive representative of all humanity. He himself is like the child in his midst. In fact, ultimately, he is the child to whom he refers to become like this Little child. We are told throughout the scriptures to become like Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who always is God, became flesh. When he entered into the human sphere, he entered into a sphere of becoming. So he himself is like the child in his midst. He is, in fact, the capital C child. 
Isaiah 53, 2 says this about Jesus. He grew up before him, God, like a child. Hos paideon. Same word used in Matthew 18, 3 and 4 that we just read. The Septuagint of Isaiah 53, 2 also says the same. Jesus is like this child before God. He was obedient to his father and humbled himself, became obedient even to the extent of the death of the cross. This was the life act, life dash act of Jesus' obedience and the feat, F-E-A-T, the achievement of his faith, culminating in his faithful death that resulted in all of humanity entering the kingdom of heaven because one child entered through humility all humanity enters with that child and so it was the life act of his obedience that gets us all there he was the one who became as this child and was exalted as by god as a result of his voluntary self humiliation Philippians 2, 6 through 11, compared with Hebrews 2, 9 and 10, and Hebrews 12, 1 to 3. This is the mind that we are to let be in us. A mind of voluntary humility, of willing humiliation. And willing humiliation does not mean degradation, but willing and absolute subordination under God's mighty hand. This child Jesus is the righteous servant of Yahweh. By his suffering and death, many were made righteous. Many, meaning all, were justified. Isaiah 53.11, which was written by the unknown prophet prodigy called Deutero-Isaiah. The unknown prophet prodigy. Looking unto Jesus is the mandate in all the scriptures. It is to look unto him and only to him. When you have a conversion, you realize that all the Bible is about Jesus. And so the becoming as a child is the becoming like Jesus, not becoming like that little kid. We got to go find him. It's all about when you have humility, all the Bible is about Jesus. It's the word God wants to say. Jesus is the only word God wants to say. To man. Lately it seems like the only word people want to say. Only not in praise. This is the mind of Christ. Looking unto Jesus. Therefore is the mandate. Looking unto him means. Aferao in Hebrews 12, look away from everybody else, including all the faith heroes of Hebrews 11, including Melchizedek, including Abraham and Moses and all the greats. Look away from them to him, the author and completer of the feat, F-E-A-T, the fait accompli of faith. A conversion occurs in which all the scripture is seen in humility as being about Jesus. I know that sounds simple, but it could be profound. For example, the child in whoever humbles himself as this child 
is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. There's only one who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and that's Jesus. Therefore, he is the child to become like in humility. In heaven and in future world, Jesus, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, is worshipped by all God's angels. Jesus' life act of humbling himself, Philippians 2.8 and Hebrews 5.7-8, and performing in that humility all the way through the death of the cross, he performed that act of humility for everyone. In his self-humbling, he humbled himself for all of humanity, even for those whose entire life act all the way to the end was self-exaltation. Imagine that. He who humbled himself in a voluntary, infinite self-humiliation saves everyone, including people who throughout their whole lives insist not on self-humiliation, but self-exaltation. Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven because he made himself the least in the kingdom of heaven and became the slave of all. The slave of all saves all. The slave is the savior of all. As Hebrews puts it, he's crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. 2, 9, and 10 of Hebrews. And he endured this in the culmination or completion of his obedience in self-humiliation. He's exalted above all because he humbled himself beneath all. He who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the greatest because he willingly became the least, even though he was in the form and essence of God. He voluntarily, this is a point of Christology, voluntarily renounced not his unchangeable nature, but the changeable form of his being to the form of a slave. Jesus made himself to be the least in the kingdom of heaven and the slave of all. If you want to be great, be the servant. If you want to be greatest of all, be the slave of all. Hebrews, Mark 10.24, 10.44 make that. So it took the slave of all to save all. The slave of all became the savior of all. Don't you think we need a little humility to bring that message of reconciliation to the world? Part of humility is be reconciled to God and the only difference between me and you is I'm reconciled to God and know it. You're reconciled to God and don't know it. So it's a done deal. If someone to ask me today, what do you do for a living? I'd say preach. If they said preach what? I'd say a done deal. Because people are very brief. They'll pay attention for that long. If you go on with that, they're going. Or they're gone. They're gone. It's, uh, it's called International Global ADD. So be brief. And you say, why aren't you being brief today? Because I, because I have a good audience. So in closing, he's exalted where he is now seated. His name will be confessed as Lord and allegiance to him will be willingly declared by every tongue while every knee bows to him in submissive veneration.
Jesus is the one, the child whose self-humiliation benefited all of humanity and was, in effect, counted to all of humanity. Who does the proud man benefit in this world? No one, and especially not himself, because the proud will be destroyed. Who does the humble man or woman benefit in this world? Many. Everyone in their periphery, everyone in their generation, everyone in their future generations, and themselves included. Jesus is the one whose self-humiliation benefited all of humanity and was in effect counted to all of humanity, as in the death that was the culmination of his humiliation, all died. So in that sense, we could even say that all participated in his humiliation. Entry into the kingdom of heaven is not about me or you humbling ourselves and being converted. It's about Jesus' humiliation. As we participate in his humility by grace, and as we receive conversions from God by grace, we enter into the operations of the kingdom of heaven now, now, right now. My conversion occurs when I see Jesus as this obedient child. And when I behold him as in a mirror and become changed, an ever-occurring conversion from one degree of glory to the next by beholding, seeing Jesus. In this way, 2 Corinthians 3.18, I become as this obedient child and enter into the operations of the kingdom of heaven all of which are the results of the pre-motion of God in Jesus the King, made efficacious by the power of the Holy Spirit in the course of the currently ongoing, invisible, universal mission of the Word, capital W, and the universal, invisible mission of the Spirit. And Father, we thank you today that you have seen fit to reveal your son to us in this way today. We realize that this is only an elementary and very early disclosure of what you want to reveal. We have yet to see the son as one hypostasis among three in the triune God, the Trinitarian action in creation and redemption. We have yet to see him in glory and therefore to be forever fascinated with his countenance. We have yet to see the all face of Jesus in every face of mankind so that our kindness is kindness to him. Our arrogance against people is arrogance against him. Our slander of people is slander against him. Our harm of people of any stage of human development is the harm of him. And yet our kindness is kindness toward him when it's kindness toward any. We thank you, Father, for this wonderful privilege that you have given us a light burden to bear the message of the ministry and the ministry of reconciliation to go forth saying to the world, not just in words and in messages, but in 
our very attitude and mind and spirit, we've been reconciled to God. Would you just be reconciled to that fact? And Father, we thank you for your kind provision for us, each individual, each family, and for us as, as an assembly. And we're grateful, Father, that you have quickened in us faith, strengthened our faith, strengthen our hope, and most of all, strengthen our love so that we may be indeed controlled by the love of Christ, knowing this, that when one died for all, all died. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You were very, very attentive today, and we will be continuing. Stay tuned for Wednesday night messages that are being produced by able ministers of the New Testament. And one of these days, we just might saunter in here on a Wednesday and do Wednesdays. So until then, and until increment 238, and until Wednesday, may the Lord bless you real good. <laughs>